Welcome to the Development Policy Center. In this podcast, you'll hear Dr. Jenny Klugman launch the Women's Peace and Security Index. You'll also hear from Australia's Global Ambassador for Women and Girls, the Honourable Dr. Sharman Stone, and Dr. Anu Mondka, the Australian Council for International Development Representative. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Presenting um, the new Women, Peace and Security Index today is Dr. Jenny Klugman. Uh, I'm sure some of you um, would have attended her talk um, a number of years ago um, here in the lecture theatre just across the hallway. Um, so thank you, Jenny, for visiting us um, once again uh, and for presenting your most recent work. Um, Jenny is a fellow at the Kennedy School of Government's uh, Women in Public Policy program at Harvard University. Uh, and Managing Director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security. Um, she was previously Director of Gender and Development at the World Bank uh, and Director and Lead Author of three Global Human Development Reports um, published by the UNDP. Um, Jenny holds a PhD uh, in Economics um, from the ANU um, and postgraduate degrees in Law and Development Economics from the University of Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, in terms of proceedings today, um, Jenny will um, present um, this new index for about 20 minutes um, and we'll then hear comments um, from two other uh, eminent persons um, who uh, have, have um, come here today. Um, I'll introduce both of them now. Um, the first is Dr. Sharman Stone, um, who is Australia's ambassador for women and girls. Um, she's been a, a long-standing advocate on gender equality issues in Australia and internationally. Um, she delivered Australia's statement on the status of women um, in the United Nations General Assembly in 2014, um, where she also worked on the development of the new Sustainable Development Goals. Um, uh, and uh, I'm sure some of you, or most of you, will recognise um, Sharman. She's a former um, Member of Parliament here in Australia, representing the Division of Murray Victoria uh, from 1996 until 2016. Um, and uh, she was also chair of the Parliamentary Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Aid Subcommittee, um, a subcommittee that um, we at the Centre um, are very pleased um, to see established. Um, and I believe she also just returned from visiting um, family um, PNG, um, a, sexual, uh, a family and sexual case management centre based in Leia in Papua New Guinea, which um, the centre, um, staff at the centre are very proud to be involved with. Our final speaker is um, Dr. Anu Mundkur. Um, anu is the civil society expert and liaison um, for ACFID, the Australian Council for International Development, um, currently seconded to the Australian Civil Military Centre. Um, she's the author of two books and currently sits uh, on a number of national committees advising policymakers on gender inclusive policies and practices. Uh, in 2016, she served as one of the NGO representatives on the Australian Government Delegation to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. Um, so Sharman and Anu will um, each speak for about 10 minutes uh, uh, after Jenny has finished, um, and hopefully we'll have around 15 minutes for questions at the end. Um, I should also mention, um, at the end of this, um, we do have drinks and canapes just out here in the foyer, so do please um, stay around for that. So uh, I think that's enough from me, and please join me in welcoming Jenny. Well, thank you, Matthew, and thank you to our colleagues at the ANU's Crawford School for hosting this event today. I'm thrilled to be here. My aim now is to flag the main headlines, um, which have emerged from this new index, show how it can be useful for your work, and hopefully have you leaving the room as excited as we are as ambassadors uh, for the new Women, Peace and Security Index. 
Let me start by showing you what's in the report, um, which we kept as slim, as slim and as accessible as possible. There are a number of accompanying academic and, and technical papers and methodological notes. Uh, the short executive summary, which is available outside, just seven pages, including pictures, uh, very much designed for the busy minister, ambassador, policymaker or student. Um, the report itself, the main report, um, has three chapters that's available uh, freely online can be downloaded the first chapter motivates the index uh, the second lays out the key results and the third takes a deeper dive into security which is a key innovation of the index and a topic of, of special focus so let's begin with the first why a new index I think that many of you would know that there are a growing number of global indices, um, including gender rankings. And as Matthew just alluded to, I've been associated with the Human Development Report, which publishes annual gender rankings every year. The World Economic Forum does the same. But we reviewed all of the existing indices and realised that there's a major gap. Gender indices are typically limited to aspects like, for example, do girls finish school or women in paid employment? These aspects of inclusion are undoubtedly important, but surely incomplete in the absence of justice and in the presence of insecurity. It's misleading to focus on whether or not in principle can attend school if it's unsafe for them in their communities or at home. Likewise, when we look at the traditional measures of security, and there are a number again of peace and security indices, um, they include an array of conflict indicators, but invariably ignore systemic bias and discrimination against women and girls. So no index before has brought together in a systematic way uh, women's inclusion, justice and security into a single number and ranking. And in that sense it's an important innovation in the way that we conceptualise women's wellbeing and what we care about. It's also the first gender index framed explicitly in the context of the Sustainable Development Agenda, which was agreed by 193 governments in September of 2016. And providing a simple number, it spotlights achievements, it also highlights deficits, and the aim is very much to inform but also to inspire governments, um, to help hold governments to account uh, as a tool for civil society to help advance the agenda. So what do we measure? This graph here shows the three broad dimensions. We have inclusion, justice and security. Here, the structure shows that inclusion has multiple aspects. Um, here you can see the indicators that we've chosen to include, but you can see that there's, it's fairly broad in, in um, measuring aspects related to um, women's economic opportunities, uh, women's um, social achievements, as well as, for example, political representation. Justice is represented both in formal laws, as captured by the World Bank's Women, Business and the Law database, but also informal justice. And here we uh, chose measures of discriminatory norms to include. And I can go into those in a bit more detail later. And then finally, security is measured at three levels. Um, not only at the, the societal level, uh, in the traditional measure of battle deaths, which is used in a number of the conflict um, uh, indices, but also at the community level, um, as well as in the household, um, and uh, violence against women in the household. I'll um, go into the security uh, dimension in particular in more detail shortly. 
But even once we decided kind of conceptually what we wanted to do, still choosing, finding and choosing indicators is difficult to do, as many of you would know from your own experience. So what were our criteria? Well, the first is that we wanted to explicitly link to what the governments had agreed to in the Sustainable Development Agenda. It's difficult to read this uh, slide, but just believe me that what it shows is that each of the indicators that we have can actually be traced directly to what's been agreed to by governments in the, in the SDGs. So, for example, there's an SDG indicator 5.2.1 is about intimate partner violence. Um, SDG indicator 16.4.2. 1.4 is about the proportion of the population who feels safe in their community at night. So for each of these indicators, um, you can find a commensurate measure, which has been agreed upon again officially uh, by the global community um, as something which is important. But then still, there's a very large number of indicators which have been agreed in the context of the SDG. So we had to choose kind of within that um, where we were going to... Uh, Focus. We didn't want to aggregate everything uh, into, into a single number. Um, so we use these criteria here. I won't go into them in any detail. Um, of course, it's important that data is available, um, that it's reliable, that it's updated on a regular basis. Um, so that was an important aspect, of, frankly pragmatic, but important aspect when um, we're talking about um, a global index. We didn't want to rely on expert judgment. Uh, so all of the data that we're using is from UN databases or, or population Survey. So in sum, we're able to cover um, a large number of countries, uh, 153 countries from around the world, uh, representing more than 98% of the world's population. So let's cut to the chase, and what did we find? Um, in this first edition of the Women, Peace and Security Index, Iceland leads the world. So here you can see the top and bottom dozen countries in the world. Um, Syria and Afghanistan are tied for last place. Um, the graph here shows the full set of 153 countries and we, you know, it's interesting obviously to look at the rankings and I'll talk about some of the rankings in a moment, but I think even more interesting than this is to look behind the rankings to see how countries perform on the different dimensions and see how they perform relative um, to their regional um, and neighbours. On the inside cover of the report you can actually find... Um, the countries as well in alphabetical order. If you're not exactly sure where your country oh, and another country of interest is, uh, is likely to fall, you can find it uh, quite easily there. But as I said, looking behind aggregate uh, rankings is in many ways more interesting. So, for example, here we show for each of the regions um, using um, UN Women, actually demarcations of the regions plus uh, developed countries here, and then the World Bank uh, definition of fragile states. Um, on, on the right-hand side, how countries perform not only in aggregate, so you can see here the grey line is aggregate uh, relative to the global average, but how they perform on each of the dimensions, so on inclusion, um, on uh, justice, as well as on, um, as well as on security. Um, so you can see here that there's significant unevenness across the dimension. So if you're just looking at inclusion, for example, you get quite a different picture, or if you're just looking at uh, justice or at security, it's not the same as looking at, at, a, at this on a more comprehensive um, basis. So for example, the US ranks 22nd overall on the world and actually does quite well on inclusion, uh, not badly on justice. But the rates of intimate partner violence in the US are 10 percentage points above the developed country average. So that pulls them down 
to the 22nd rank. Another example is the uh, United Arab Emirates, um, which does fairly well on the indicators of um, uh, education uh, and other aspects of inclusion that we include, but it has particularly poor performance on legal discrimination. And again, that falls down the UAE. It's also interesting to look at the patterns of achievement uh, across regions, looking at um, the good performers at the regional level. So rather than um, comparing um, a fragile state or a poor developing country uh, in Africa or elsewhere to Iceland or Norway, um, they can compare themselves to countries in their own region. And what's noticeable here is that there are countries in every region that are above the global average. Um, so, for example, in, um, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, not only uh, Namibia, but also South Africa, Mauritius, Ghana and Tanzania are all above the global average. There are many countries in Latin America which are above the global average, including Jamaica, Costa Rica, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and so on. So looking at the feasibility of improvement or highlighting the feasibility of improvement by pointing to neighbours is something as well that we tried to illustrate in this. However, at the same time, it is striking that in a number of countries, too many are being held back by pervasive um, injustice as well as security constraints. And echoing what the Human Development Report has been saying for many years, money matters, but it's only part of the story. Um, so what this graph here underlines that a number of countries do much better, but a number of countries actually do much worse than what their ranking is in terms of per capita income. So the red ones here are the ones that drop relative to their ranking in uh, per capita income. So Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia drops um, a massive um, uh, 89 places relative to its per capita income ranking. Kuwait drops 79 places. And we do some exploration of um, the implications of that as well. Of course, what the index itself captures is limited to what can be quantified in, in a fairly simple way. So what we also try and do in the report is include a series of so-called country spotlights. So trying to, it's still quite brief, but trying to get a bit of a sense both of trends over time and trying to explain um, what, the, what the story is, what's driving these observed achievements and deficits in, uh, in the index score. So the Philippines, for example, uh, does quite well relative to income per capita. It's made major commitments to the um, Women, Peace and Security agenda. Um, it has a national action plan, but there are significant gaps in the labour market. Uh, legal discrimination is pervasive. South Africa is another interesting example. It does relatively well. Um, overall in sub-Saharan Africa, it does well on education and parliamentary representation, but there are major challenges, particularly on the security front. Only um, 3 in 10 women in South Africa feel safe in their neighbourhood at night. There are cases of progress, like Colombia, uh, but its overall achievements are still held back by high rates of intimate partner violence. And then there are countries, um, particularly those affected by conflict, which are facing real risks of reversal. So, for example, Burundi is a country that had made some major gains, particularly in terms of girls' education, which is now uh, being engulfed in conflict, which is threatening uh, uh, those achievements. When we look at Australia, um, there's much to like. Uh, overall, um, Australia scores um, overall um, at 17th rank, does relatively well or strongly, I would say, on the inclusion and justice dimension. So it's either at or above the developed country average um, on those fronts. One thing that emerges quite um, markedly, though, in the Australian case 
is the very high share of women who don't feel safe walking in their neighbourhood at night. Uh, so only about half of women in Australia feel safe uh, walking in their neighbourhood um, at night. It's actually uh, the worst among all developed countries and actually there's a large gender gap on this as well. Uh, so women are 35 percentage points less likely to feel safe than men in their neighbourhood at night. Um, looking a little bit more closely at the aspects related to security, as I mentioned, this is a major innovation of the index and uh, to try and deal with this in a um, more nuanced way, we um, distinguish between the household, the community, as well as the societal levels. Um, intimate partner violence, as I think all of you would know, is the most common form of violence experienced by women. Globally, we rely on UN women data here. We actually use um, lifetime rates of violence because we did, there's not sufficient annual data to be able to estimate um, this for a large number of countries. And we also explore um, the finding that um, the rates of intimate partner violence are systematically higher as well in conflict-affected countries and examine the evidence associated with that. And you can see the differences here between the red and the blue is comparing the rates of violence in conflict versus uh, non-conflict-affected countries. Um, as I mentioned, outside the home, um, the question that we explore or that we utilise is that from the Gallup World Poll related to um, security in the neighbourhood. Venezuela comes out worst in the, in the world here. Uh, the average gender gap is seven percentage points, men feeling more safe than women. But as I mentioned, Australia is amongst the world, worst in the world here, actually, together with, with Saudi Arabia. And one disturbing finding which emerges, and it's shown here in this scatter plot, is that women who feel safe, unsafe in their homes are also likely to be living in countries where they also feel unsafe in their neighbourhoods. It's not necessarily a surprising finding, but I think it's, it's a depressing uh, reminder um, of the pervasiveness of insecurity um, in, in those contexts. And then finally, but not least, um, on the um, our measure of organised violence seeks to capture generalised insecurity in society. I should have mentioned that this work, which I did with the Georgetown Institute of Women, Peace and Security, was joint, or is joint, with the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, who are really kind of world-leading uh, conflict experts. And what we used here um, whilst it has some drawbacks, it's not gender disaggregated, um, it doesn't capture, for example, the adverse impacts of conflict, for example, on maternal mortality and access to services and so on, it's still regarded as, if you like, the gold standard in terms of conflict measures. Um, it's, it's calculated by Uppsala in, in Norway. Um, what this Uppsala measure does um, is provide the transparency as well as the comprehensiveness uh, in terms of country coverage that we see. And what this graph shows is um, the trends over time. So you can see the spikes associated uh, with large-scale conflicts. So this was Rwanda in the mid-90s. This was the war in the Horn uh, of Africa between Eritrea and Ethiopia. And here now, the war in Syria. Um, and what, the index, uh, what this indicator also does is include um, uh, rebel-based conflict and, and one-sided conflict as well as um, conflict between states. So finally, um, where are we now? Where do we want to go? Um, our goal is very much to raise awareness about the index, its value to broad stakes, uh, groups of stakeholders and to the international um, community. I think in many ways we've just scratched the surface in terms of the potential uh, value uh, from an analytical and empirical point of view as well as its potential in terms of advocacy. 
Um, I think it, there would be interesting potential for, for example, explorations at the country level, particularly in larger countries, to look at differences. <laughs> there are countries that we were unable to include in the index because we didn't have the data available um, for sufficient indicators where it might be possible to experiment with an adapted version of the index. Um, we would like to develop a toolkit for advocates. Um, I'm happy to say that the Government of Norway is... Um, uh, um, prepared to continue uh, to support the work over the next couple of years and will enable an update in 2019 in advance of um, uh, major UN um, and international discussions then. And I'll just leave you with some shameless self-promotion uh, on the final slide. So this is a, a word cloud that we've generated based on the endorsements that we've uh, received um, for the index, but for example, the launch that is in Oslo included the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs there. We had Lord Ahmed uh, at the LEC in London, who's there on board for, for Women, Peace and Security. Um, it's clearly something new, it's something innovative, but we're really hoping that it has both the, um, uh, the, 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 um, the conceptual um, uh, kind of cohesion or coherence as well as the, the, the technical rigour which will enable it to be to be widely utilised. So thanks very much and I look forward to your feedback. Thank you very much. So as I said, we'll have um, questions at the end, so please join me in uh, welcoming Dr. Sharmenstein. Thank you very much. Let me also begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this area, the, the Ngunnawal in particular and the Gatwick people. And it's a pleasure to be here at ANU and to see its continued leadership in wanting to pursue the issues of gender, peace and security. Can I also acknowledge our DFAT representative here, just sitting in the second row, um, Eleanor Flowers, who's uh, in our gender equity team and she leads on our women, peace and security work. So great to see you here too, Eleanor. Um, and of course, Jenny uh, and Anu, who's over there, who will be speaking next. I'm the Australian Global Ambassador for Women and Girls, and my territory is the Indo-Asia-Pacific. My task is to go around our region, particularly where we've got a donor um, partnership relationship with the various countries, but not exclusively. For example, I go to Malaysia and, uh, and uh, Singapore, and I do a lot of bilateral work in the Northern Hemisphere. But as I go about, what I'm trying to do is to look beyond the silos, to where we say fund uh, markets for change with the UN Women. Brilliant program. But quite self-evidently, in the Solomons, where we're funding a women uh, market um, initiative, it's also helping empowering those women economically, but it means they are also more likely to be able to have cell phone access and therefore be more empowered through contacting each other. And they become more um, confident about fighting back. I don't mean that always literally, in terms of gender-based violence. Clubbing together, talking together about what can be done. And one of the best examples I've seen is in the Solomons, where a community development type project with Oxfam and the local people actually used um, local community people, mostly men, to be like community police, a couple of women as well, who together agreed that the violence against their women must stop, that it was not appropriate, if it was a, an unmanly thing to do. The violence had been there, of course, well before the Solomon's conflict, 
but was continuing unabated post-conflict. And yet, through that community development process, the people owning that action, they were able to reduce their violence with literally the community turning on a perpetrator, someone hurting one of their wives or children, their attention being drawn to that fact through the noise, a woman calling from help, then, then using a bell to notify that household person literally stay outside ringing a bell saying, we know you're up to this, you better stop. If you don't stop this action in the next, you know, few minutes, we'll be back and we'll be taken to the police station. Now that was worked through by the local community, a community-based project, a community itself working on how to deal with post-conflict and conflict-related violence against their women and children. But of course, it can't be isolated just to a silo of its dealing with gender-based violence. It was also about education, information. It was about um, immunisation of the children, getting the women toilets built, infrastructure investment. It was about the women having access to mobile phones to better organise their markets. So this is such an important index, this index, because it connects up the dots. And it introduces for some of the first time, and Jenny alluded to this, some very important indicators that have not been given attention before, I don't think, in this way. One of those is men's response to women's paid work. Why do men want their wives to leave their homes? We all know women are... All women work, unless they're uh, totally disabled and unable. Women work, but it's a paid work in the formal economy we're talking about. So when men say, no, 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 women's place is in the home where she also grows all the vegetables, raises the pigs, looks after the six kids and my mother and my brothers and their wives, no, she must not work. In brackets, outside the home. It's interesting when you look at that cluster and you then look at religion. And I think when we have these regional clusters and we see these attitudes strongly displayed in the data, and then to say, why is this so? Why is that regional cluster... Um, appearing to feature very strongly in that particular category, uh, men's response to women's work, and we see they're the countries that are Islamic mostly. And when I'm just back from Malaysia, as I am, and Indonesia, and the women there are working so uh, hard to try and push back on the increasing um, insistence that they stay at home, do not go out into the workplace, pull their heads in when it comes to being global, and then we relate that to the uh, growing concern about radicalisation in those communities. And we're seeing it as a middle-class phenomenon in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, where fairly well-educated women who had white-collar work are now leaving that work and returning to a home-based situation where they're spending a lot of time in the mosque and they're focusing very much on Sharia laws, um, uh, ascendancy over the civil law and in particular in relation to marriage and identity of their children. So I think this index really starts to home in on some matters which in our region we haven't tended to really put our finger on. The other is, as uh, Jen has just said, women's perception of their own community safety. There hasn't been much work done in that area at all. I think it's quite shocking to see that Australian data. I think it's very concerning. And I wish that um, our law and order 
uh, and our media uh, agencies look at that, that we also make sure our local governments are aware of that and that women and girls, uh, boys and men are looking very much at that fact um, and saying, what, how can we make sure women can feel safe in their job or take the dog for a walk or just simply move about in their neighbourhood? But that hasn't had that sort of, um, those metrics associated with it. And I think uh, you're right, absolutely, Jenny, when you say that women who don't feel safe in their own homes are often also not feeling safe in their communities. The two are all very um, closely linked. I was interested in your sun bias um, data, that, and I mentioned to you before. Australia does poorly comparatively in terms of sun bias, and yet, um, the data in Australia, uh, the overall population data shows there are more women than men in Australia. But Jenny was telling me the data is derived from births recently. And I wonder if that's displaying a gender bias. Now, are we really um, uh, terminating our girl fetuses or are we choosing in our fertility treatments boy only outcomes, or is it the fact that 30% of Australia's births now are assisted fertility births, and we know assisted fertility tends to produce girls rather than boys, especially IVF. So IVF, I think it's about 60%, 60, 40 girls will be the outcome compared to boys. It's not necessarily gender bias, it's a reality is that uh, girl fetuses are a bit more rugged and resilient and survive a bit better than boys. <laughs> Absolutely scientific. Totally, <laughs> totally. And I just visited my two IVF grandchildren on the way here. One boy, one girl. And they're so excited that they had a boy. True, um, but they decided to have a girl because they knew those those ratios were most likely to produce a girl. So I'm wondering. I think we've got to bury, burrow down behind some of the data. I think the thing about this index, like all indices, is the strength of the data. How do we make sure that data? when we depend on the country itself to produce that data, how do we make sure it isn't uh, reflecting, in fact, the norms of that country, the gendered norms, or indeed the race, the racial, class-bound, other norms? For example, when we look at the very comparatively strong performance of Singapore, uh, I know Singapore quite well, the, I wonder if their data includes their 1.5 million guest workers because they score so highly on women's educational outcomes. I have a strong suspicion it doesn't include all the nannies and certainly there are not many women in construction, but you know, the workers who keep the wheels turning in Singapore, those women who spend their entire careers there, they're not just fly and fly out as we know, um, their educational levels, attained mostly in the Philippines, but also in Indonesia, other places, are very, very small. Uh, so I suspect, you know, if Singapore gives us uh, their data and says, look at us, and in fact they've told me this personally on more than one occasion, the government, look how amazingly well our women are doing educationally. And I said, fantastic, your guest workers, I'm so pleased you're now allowing them access to education. <laughs> no, 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 we're talking Singaporeans. Well, excuse me, a third of your population are guest workers. You wonder in Saudi Arabia, even the Emirates, how are they counting in their enormous, especially Saudi, their enormous population of their 
virtually permanent populations of non-citizens whose data will completely skew their, their uh, income per capita data, their educational per data, um, and so on. And certainly their gender ratios, you know. And you, it, it isn't male preferences because the men uh, have got more likely to get jobs to build the new guitar, the guitar um, sports, um, world sports cup stadium than women needed in that job, and they'll leave it for 10 years. So I see I'm sort of getting at, I'm saying data is key to these indices. This is a brilliant indice, it's going to help me personally a lot, and I know DFAT will be working hard upon it. But we're dependent on data, and we're dependent on countries like PNG, you know, they don't have births, deaths and marriages registers. We are doing a fabulous aid job at the moment in Indonesia. I've just visited the Makassar. We're actually, as an Australian support, helping children to have birth certificates. For marriage certificates to be given to couples who are married according to Sharia uh, religious law, but therefore don't have formal marriage certificates and hence no uh, protection after divorce or for their children's identity, um, and so on. But it's no wonder and Jenny, I know, and her team tried very hard. It's no wonder the Pacific's missing in this index. I understand their data was their data that was available, as referred to in the report, was used as part of the averaging in the what's called the Southeast Asia Pacific region. But we have no Pacific countries in this data because they only managed to collect in one or two um, categories. So this is extraordinarily problematic for trying to have our governments in these extraordinarily fragile states. I'm talking about Kiribati, Vanuatu, Fiji is perhaps the strongest in the area, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea, these little countries, they're not all little, these countries who are struggling with, take Timor-Leste, highest population growth still per capita in the world, and, um, highest stunting in the world, and just talking about whether they'll remove access to unmarried girls to contraception. Heard that one. Uh, PNG, um, and this is where this index is so helpful, even though we don't have PNG data to help them ranking in here. We've got to understand that there are other data that we can use. I was at Lay Hospital uh, a week ago, and we're talking about the numbers of Patients admitted to their accident and emergency each evening. And the director of that hospital is ex-US military medical person. He was last based in Iraq in their medical areas. And he was looking at the WHO ranking for how many um, accident and emergency patients coming each night who are presenting due to violent episodes. Their ranking is as a war zone in the PNG Lay Hospital. That's how many are coming in each night with serious machete wounds, um, gunshot wounds, not so much, but a number, but most extraordinarily violent spearings and so on. It's equivalent to a, to a war zone, but this index at this point can't help us because you know that's just one hospital state and the whole country doesn't have that data. We can, you know, we can, as a, a country like Australia, try and help particularly with this data area, because I see this as one of the keys of how I'm 
have this index can help because if you've got real con uh, concrete data that you can then compare yourself with another country, you've got this scorecard diplomacy at work, which you refer to. And it can be a call out for underachievers or a pat on the back for good performance. That's you know, part of the outcomes of scorecard diplomacy. But if our most fragile neighbours haven't got the capacity to even be on the list, then that's a problem. Just give you one example though, because I could go on indefinitely about this area. It, it, it is so um, complex what you've achieved here, Jenny and your team with all of these countries, all the different data sets, how you've managed to aggregate and, and harmonise and, and do what you've done is extraordinary. But I'll give you one example where the wheels can fall off. Australia was so concerned to get to help in the Pacific with uh, health data. Because if you're a country like the Kiribati or Vanuatu and you're trying to run a health uh, portfolio and you don't know the causes of death in your country, or the average age of death. What, you might have a bit of an idea of infant or um, maternal health numbers, but you don't know on average who dies when and of what. So we've put uh, quite a bit of funding into the Blomberg Foundation to do a number of countries' health data. And I was in Vanuatu, or was it the Solomon's Which country was it? It was Vanuatu. And the first country's data had just come in and the key researcher, chief researcher, had just presented the data to as many of the local Western-trained medical staff from the hospitals, the clinics, the department, and, uh, which was an excellent thing, of course, to do. And they'd been consulted along the way and he was collecting data on the 10 top causes of death in Vanuatu, which is extraordinarily useful and powerful, of course. Are they non-communicable diseases? Are communicable? You know, what sort of resources required to tackle these 10 top causes of death in Vanuatu? And he showed me the list. And he said, um, and to me it made perfect sense, you know, it had diabetes about the down, there was renal, there was heart, there was all the usual ones that you'd expect. And uh, he said, but you know, I came to a screaming halt. I presented this data and I asked for any comments, questions, and I could see there was a bit of concern amongst these medical professionals. They were talking to one another. I said, you know, is there something I've missed? And they sort of caucused for a minute or two and said, yes, you've missed one of the top 10 causes of death in Vanuatu. And said, oh, so, you know, quick, quick, let's talk about this. What have I done wrong? And they said, yes, death through sorcery. Wow. Okay, so he's on a different page. He's a purely Western-orientated, facts, figures, man, mortuary data, hospital records, clinic. But they were deadly serious. No, they were. Right? The top ten causes of death in Vanuatu must, for purposes of accuracy, include death resource. Now, PNG at the moment is going through an epidemic of deaths through witchcraft and sorcery, which is all connected with the fact that the education system's collapsed. You have... Uh, this something like 80% youth unemployment and unemployable, uh, massive increase in violence associated with lack of status, lack of an illegitimate outlet for gaining status and prestige, so gangs, militia, um, violence wherever you go, and extreme um, distress 
in terms of women trying to become economically empowered and join Parliament. But having said all of that, now what is one of the outcomes? Growing sorcery accusations, targeting women, and especially women who have a little bit of land, um, older women who might own a little bit more. And it all is linked up. It's all about conflict, it's about violence, it's about opportunities, it's all linked up. And this is where this work is so powerful because if you went out into PNG and asked men's response to women's paid work, I think you get the same results as you've got for other similar sorts of areas. Uh, on the other hand, women do 80 or 90% of the productive work in PNG, you always have to. So I'm just saying this is a great index. It gives us a lot of things to think about, like the role that access to something like a cell phone has for a woman who's remote. Um, I'm a bit nervous about that sun-biased piece of data for Australia. I'm shocked by the women's lack of sense of safety, but boy, I don't want to walk around at dark in my part of the world either, uh, by myself. I think this um, women's experience of organised crime, obviously a key piece of data <coughs> in here, but the thing that shocked me a bit, Jenny, was that it also showed that despite if you're in a con conflict middle of a conflict, you'll still mostly experience your intimate partner violence from hitting the partner. You might be under siege in Bougainville or in Syria, River, but the intimate partner violence still is the majority of the violence that will be experienced by the women. And the data also you suggest, Jenny, shows that the women are more likely to report that it's state-based, uh, well, Operators who are state-based, like the official armies, I suppose, compared to the militia, who are more likely to be reported for oh. gender-based violence, which, which I found surprising too. Can I recommend everyone reads this very carefully, does a lot of work with it because it's extraordinarily rich in what it offers us to um, think further about. In our region, the Pacific is again missing in action because it is so far behind in terms of data, capacity to find and work up data and get this massive migration out of these countries where the most able are leaving, hollowing out of these countries. We've got to be tuned into those migration issues to see impact on women and violence. There are so many things we need to think about. This index gives us a great um, score, a system of producing a lot of complexity to a number and then it puts those numbers of those countries into their regions where we can compare and contrast. It helps the individual countries perhaps say, oh, we've done well there, but we need to plug our socks in some other area. It, it must be useful for countries, and it will certainly help us with our aid program, I know, and our work we're increasingly doing on trying to deal with radicalisation and further conflict uh, growing in our part of the world. So thanks very much. Well, can I apologise to Sophie and Sadi? No, you're not Sophie, are you? I almost thought you were Sophie from Dinner. There's another DPAC person here. And I did miss Paul. And um, I think we'll provide Jenny with an opportunity to respond to some of those um, some of those comments at the end. Now please join me in welcoming Dr.
Thank you. Um, I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, thank you really for inviting me to reflect on the new WPS index. And since I wear many hats, I just wanted to make it really clear that today I'm, represent I'm here as ACFID, which is the Australian Council for International Development. I'm here as ACFID's representative to the Australian Civil Society Coalition on Women, Peace and Security. I really believe that the Women, Peace and Security Index makes a really important contribution to the idea of sustaining peace, which is at the front and centre of two identical uh, resolutions that were passed um, at the UN. So the UN Security Council Resolution 22H2 talks about sustaining peace, and we had the 70th session of the UN General Assembly also highlighting the importance of sustaining peace. And by really making us, by making conspicuous the, the, the development security nexus, the index highlights really very key dimensions of justice, inclusion, and security as integral to achieving sustain, sustainable peace. In this regard, the Women, Peace, and Security Index resonates with the themes that emerged from 13 roundtables that the Australian um, Civil Society Coalition on Women, Peace, and Security organized in September this year. These roundtables were with women from diverse backgrounds and they really sought to unpack what diverse groups of women think peace and security mean and what Australia should be doing to promote peace and security. So it is really in the context of these roundtable discussions that I want to explore two dimensions of the Women, Peace and Security Index and that's only because I will definitely run out of time. <laughs> so looking at that first dimension of inclusion, um, the roundtables really drew our attention to the need for a safe space for diverse communities and, and, of, and their organizations, particularly spaces for women and girls to exercise agency and participate in decision making. The root of the WPS movement lies in civil society activism, and it is this activism that continues to sustain the agenda. But we really cannot take this space for granted in the light of persistent efforts to close down these spaces. Currently, in the Australian Government Senate, there is a bill being proposed to restrict advocacy for any organisation receiving foreign donations. And this, as Mark Purcell, the CEO of ACFID, has said, is really an attempt to shut down legitimate comment on matters of public interest by restricting funding sources available to charities. And if we think back, Manuel Castells reminds us that if you don't have effective civil society capable of structuring and, and channeling civilian debates over diverse and conflicting issues, then the state will drift away from its subjects. And so I'd really like to see the next iteration of the WPS Index draw on what is happening and account for the shrinking civil society space and the Civicus Monitor might be able to provide useful data uh, for us to draw on. With respect to women's participation in Parliament, this was an issue that came up at the roundtables as well. But the roundtables also really highlighted the insufficiency of looking at numbers alone. Don't get me wrong, numbers are important. I mean, ask the women in PNG, where out of 111 members of Parliament, there is no single woman in the current Parliament. But at the same time, numbers, especially women in parliament, make a poor proxy for gender responsive policy and legislative agendas. I think we really need to question the value of 32% representation when a minister holding the women's portfolio 
crosses the floor in favor of a motion to challenge White Ribbon about its advocacy on nationally consistent access to safe and legal abortion, including long-term abortion in all states and territories. In seeking a more robust indicator for inclusion, particularly around women's participation, the Women, Peace and Security Index you know, might explore um, a couple of new indexes that are coming out. One is the Women's Political Empowerment Index, which is from an organization called Varieties of Democracy, and the Women's Stats Project, which has an indicator called Women's Security Through Voice. Looking at security, the security dimension, um, you know, eliminating sexual and gender-based violence and community safety came up repeatedly in all the 13 roundtables. And with respect to community safety, particularly diaspora women talked about feeling unsafe, walking alone by themselves, or even using public transport. Um, but at the same time, almost across the roundtables, another consistent theme was concerns around militarization. So the and, and I think this is an important link to the Women, Peace and Security agenda because Women, Peace and Security is, is first and foremost about long-term prevention of conflict and instability. And this means transforming structures that contribute to violence and militarization and armament. And so in this regard, the WPS index in its next iteration, I think, in addition to looking at battle debts, I think really needs to look at military expenditures. Battle debts is an interesting indicator and might be sounding a little controversial here, but it lets developing countries like Australia off the hook, as it doesn't account for civilian debts resulting from intervention, Australian interventions in Syria. That's not attributed to us. So looking at the Global Militarization Index, which examines military expenditures as a percentage of GDP, it also looks at the total number of military, including reserves, and paramilitary forces in relation to population. Um, it looks at uh, the total number of heavy weapons available in relation to population. We also have the CIPRI index, the military expenditure data, which compares military expenditure as a share of GDP and per capita. Um, we might add these dimensions to looking at um, security in addition to looking at battle debts, and maybe some of those rankings may, may change a little bit. Women's participation in all aspects of peace and security policy is a core pillar of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And I really feel very, very strongly that this index must reflect this in its construction. Currently, the index gives equal weightage to all indicators. It would be interesting if in the next iteration, the index might look at allowing women to give weight to, according to the level of importance women hold to issues. So, for example, the OECD has a better life index, um, and it allows, and the index allows users to weight um, different dimensions differently. So, overall, Australia appears really high and really good among the top three in the OECD Better Life Index. But the moment you give greater weight to the number of hours per worked per week, the, we drop in the ranking quite considerably. So, whether it would be interesting to see whether we could do something similar with the WPS index. In closing, I'd like to say that the current iteration of the WPS index makes a really very good and strong case for looking at women, peace and security as a domestic agenda, which in, for developing countries is important because up until now, I think we mainly see it as a foreign policy or, a, or an international development agenda. And while 
Australian Roundtable participants did raise gender inequality and gender-based violence as issues of concern. They also linked peace and security to climate displacement, our refugee policy, our unfinished work on reconciliation, our appalling contribution to overseas aid, international trade, bilateral and multilateral relations. And so the Women, Peace and Security agenda is both, at, is both looking at the impact of women, impact of conflict on women and girls, but it is also about what women say constitutes peace and security. And I think the current index sits within a larger set of issues that may not always be quantifiable, but which we must discuss alongside the indicators used in this index. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, I might ask our three speakers to just come up here to the front. Um, <coughs> we don't have very wonderful questions, unfortunately, but I, I might um, uh, extend um, this session by another five minutes or so just to allow us to go for at least one round um, of questions. Um, please do keep <coughs> your questions uh, short um, and introduce yourself um, as well when you ask the questions. There's a roving mic, and um, Sashini, I think there's one video if you have Thanks very much for those presentations. Um, I'm Dr. Jane Manley. I'm another defatter here today. And I'm a gender focal point for our humanitarian policy and uh, responses. And I was wondering, um, Dr. Klugman, if you would like to comment on um, correlations and causation. So I guess. In our line of work, we're talking about gender equality. A lot of people say, you know, the more women you've got in leadership positions, the better organisations function, or the more women are involved in peace and security, the better the outcomes. Higher the status of the women, better the economy functions. And I think you mentioned that there is a correlation with income and your index, perhaps, although some countries are more better at some of them. Um, I was just wondering what you think about correlations and causations and whether there, we, we know which it is. And I also noticed if, it seemed like if you break up your indicator into the three kind of subgroups, they don't seem to be internally correlated with it. That's just me eyeballing them. I haven't read your full <coughs> Anyway, just you could comment on that, John. Thanks. Um, so we'll take a few questions. Um, so I'm going to here. Hi, my name is Susan Hutchinson. I'm a PhD candidate here at the ANU, working on women, peace and security. I'm on the Civil Society Coalition for Women, Peace and Security, and I run a campaign called Prosecute, Don't Perpetrate about sexual violence and armed conflict. Um, I'm really hoping to hear from you, um, Jenny, but from the rest of you as well. Um, I had been very closely watching the Women's Stats database, and I often use that um, as a source of data when I'm looking at these issues. Um, and I get the, that you started your presentation with the question around reliability of data and the consistency of data. Um, and the Women's Stats Project was able to kind of overcome some of that by the very nature of the fact that it used, it, 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 there was a lot of work in the using bits of data uh, to try and compile something. Um, and the, we have the same problem with the SDGs, that often we don't have sex disaggregated data on these very issues that go to the very core of the Women, Peace and Security agenda particularly when we're looking at the kind of the most affected and the most prone countries on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. So I wanted to kind of um, see if you guys could make some comments about that, please. Thank you. 
Thank you. Are there any other questions? Um, just a second. Hi, my name is Jackie Westman. I'm from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and I have a question in regards to the National Action Plan. Um, so there will be a new National Action Plan in Australia in 2019. So probably next year, the whole year of 2018, will be worked on that. And I'm um, seeing the data, especially on Australia. I was wondering whether you could point to some things that should be definitely taken into consideration, drawing from the data. Thank you very much. And uh, Susan, you have a question from Hi, Sue Harris from Griffith University. I just wondered about uh, the legal discrimination. I could see that it linked to your very wonderful work previously with the uh, legal discrimination in the public sphere. And as you know, Australia also, all of our discrimination laws think about women's economic uh, participation in the workplace, very workplace focused. Um, but I'm aware of some really interesting work coming out of the US, particularly from Valerie Hudson, around other types of discrimination around personal status, which was what the ambassador was talking about as well. The right to marry, the right to divorce, the right. And I feel like this is a really important area uh, to think about, because most valuable discrimination indices are really about economic mm -hmm. focus. And I think this personal status aspect is something we should look at. The other thing where I have never been able to find a decent set of data is about funding for local women's organisations. So, you know, we know the Security Council resolutions say that states should fund local women who are responding to peace and security issues. Nowhere can you find out if this is being done by who, which organisations on what basis. So that would be wonderful if you could turn your mind to that. And I think there was a final question here. From the winter, a new graduate. 40 years ago, I was doing forestry. Girls in my family, we all had to put ourselves through the end, but were boys were paid for by our parents. My parents were two generations older, but I refer to the doctrine of primogeniture, which is still punishing a family every time someone dies, the boys inherit. How do you have any comments on that in Australian society? Because our generation, baby boomers, is still paying for it today, let alone the opportunities we had to work and fight for when we were younger. Great. Um, so, Jenny, would you like to start us? And, sure. and if you'd like to respond to, to the comments of, of the ambassador, or I mean, please do. Sure. Is this on? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks very much for the rich set of comments, and I took, I took lots of notes, and I think the ambassador um, highlighted several important advantages of the index in kind of bringing together um, a, a more comprehensive and kind of coherent um, measure of what we really care about, whether it's a kind of women to markets program or whether we're thinking about health or, or other dimensions and highlighting some of the key innovations which we think help to, to do that. Um, I think you're right to point out the potential drawbacks of relying on national statistics in the exclusion of temporary workers or people who are not granted citizenship. Um, that's obviously not peculiar to or unique to the, the WPS index, um, but I think it's an important caveat that we should be drawing attention to, particularly for countries uh, where that's a, that's a large issue. And I think that your ideas around the potential to explore ways to um, kind of pragmatically um, apply at least the concepts, if not the exact measures associated with the index in the Pacific and other mm. places where there's a value to taking this sort of approach. Mm. I think it's very interesting. I'd be happy to talk to you mm. more about that um, in the future. Um, 
Anu, um, I think you made a, a number of very important comments. I think the, the challenge with any of these indices is um, the kind of the struggle for wanting something very comprehensive and then on the other hand something which is sufficiently simple that you can work out what's, what's going on. And I guess there's a couple of important things that relates as well to the data questions um, that were raised. We really didn't want to rely on so-called expert judgment um, and so whilst I entirely agree that kind of civil society space would be a very important dimension to capture and that women's representation in parliament is a very grossly inadequate measure. Um, we just don't have systematic data on, on that. Um, and so I think that over time we do have the flexibility to innovate, so we're not stuck with this set of indicators. So if in two years' time there actually are new data which are available which enable us to get a richer picture, um, I think that would be interesting. I think on the other aspect, so for example, kind of relationships with military spending and, and other points, I think it links quite nicely to the question about correlations and causation. So um, you can actually look and see um, how a country's performance on the WPS index actually relates to military spending, because military spending is not inside the index, so it's not endogenous. Um, likewise, um, we actually have done some initial work, and I can share some of the results, which um, look at um, the links between the indicators that we have inside the index, in particular intimate partner violence, norms against women working, um, and other aspects of discrimination, and how that relates to the likelihood of conflict. And so there we're trying to do quite careful analysis to the extent that it can be done across countries, and clearly there are always questions about causation in this sort of analysis, but it's going beyond correlation to see, well, what are the links between what we have inside the index and the likelihood of a country experiencing um, widespread violence. Um, on uh, Sue's point about those aspects of discrimination, I agree they're very important, but they're actually in, they're in that database, they're included. So it includes family law, it includes personal law, it includes laws around citizenship and so on. So it's actually quite a broad measure. So it's called Women, Business and the Law, but frankly it's a bit of a misnomer. And if you look at what's actually included there, and they in fact have a, a very useful database. It's organised across seven um, domains, it's called, and several of those are actually very much around kind of marriage, the family, personal law, citizenship, and actually I think give quite insight, rich insights beyond kind of signing a contract and setting up a business and taking out a loan. Um, and then on the, on the National Action Plan, I mean, I'm obviously not deeply engaged in the Australian policy debate, I think Anu and Chavin would be a better place to talk about that, but... I guess one thing that um, one observes as an outsider um, is that the, the national action plans in developed or, or rich countries tend to be very much externally facing. Um, the same is true in the UK, the yes. same is true yes. in um, um, other, other countries around the world. And so the question is whether or not the results from this type of analysis can help to motivate more of a, an internal focus to complement the external focus. And so we'd be really interested to see how that evolves over time, but um, I think it's a great suggestion. Right, uh, final comments from the rest of the panel. Please do keep them short as well, because you are literally yeah, yeah. sitting between the audience. And, uh, yes, drinks. Canapes in the foyer, absolutely. They were very interesting um, through the thoughts, everybody. I appreciate what you were saying. Read the National Action Plan. I would certainly be concerned if we didn't look at our remote Indigenous communities and the extraordinary levels of violence, lack of safety, lack of opportunity, uh, which we know is the life experience of too many of our Indigenous Australians living outside our major urban areas. 
and so we must, it must be both domestically. Psycho SDG uh, voluntary review coming up next year. Yeah. Yes. Um, obviously, that will have to be domestically focused, not just us talking about our own impact as we can um, assess it at that stage. Referring to the data, um, as I was saying in my remarks, data is what drives your index. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it's an aggregation of data which we depend on national um, various agencies, institutions to provide, hopefully with some UN guides perhaps or up some other transparent process. But it, it is both our strength and our weakness because damn lies and statistics. You, know, <laughs> you, you, you can, you, you really, uh, if you're dependent on, dare I say it, some of our most fragile states to give us some indicator of, um, you know, even their births and deaths data, they don't have it. Mm -hmm. And worse than that, it can be coloured. So, but it even gets I think beyond that, UNFPA, as we know, is responsible for collecting data on family planning, access and unmet needs. They know, everyone in this room, I reckon, probably knows that they can only collect data in most countries from married women, right? Because many countries, particularly in our region, do not collect data on contraceptive need or access of unmarried women, which are 30% of the births in most of these countries. So. UFPA goes out there with that UN data knowing it's 30% at least inaccurate. But that's what's used to drive fundraising, access to new product, um, countries being told about their unmet need. So, you know, we really have an issue with data in this world. I mentioned that. Um, well, well, I think, Jenny, you've covered very much what I would have said. But I think you also make the point in your report you can have the most fantastic legislation in place on the books, uh, but it's not, in fact, resourced there. Um, the country doesn't, in fact, empower their bureaucracy to go out and deliver that new policy. PNG is a classic example of their um, recent family security policy. Or they might have rape in marriage as a crime, but only if it's a divorced woman or a child bride under the age of 15 or whatever. So you've got to be so careful with your data again and say, oh, fabulous, they've got a whole draft, a whole suite of legislation dealing with discrimination in the workplace. What's it actually uh, meaning on the ground? So you've got to ground proof a lot of this data all the time. And uh, I reckon a great indicator in terms of women's empowerment, violence against women, is rates of uh, female genital mutilation. You might say, where do we get that data? Well, in fact, that data is coming through in Malaysia and Indonesia at the moment in terms of the hospitalisation or the medicalisation of FGM and its increase across those two countries in particular. That is, I think, that has direct correlation with women's um, equity and violence against women, growing radicalisation against women often too. So there's other surrogates or data that we can collect to enrich what you've got in your two-year review. Mm -hmm which is going to give us a lot more um, sense of what's going on beyond just the bald statistics, which we know are too often uh, not accurate or reflect too much a gendered approach anyway in each of those countries.
I just have two <coughs> comments uh, to make. The women's stats, um, yes, I, I tend to use that a lot too, um, largely also because they allow for multivariate as well as, so they have you know, combined scales that they put their indicators together, but you can also look at individual. But one thing I'd like, if it's possible for the, for the index to do, is to do what the women's stats do. They publish their entire code book and data sources. So if you want to delve down deeply into a particular country, you can actually know exactly where they got the data from. Um, it'd be great if the website, WPS Index website, provided that as well, so that we could you know, look more deeply at Australia or whichever region you were interested in. The question about the National Action Plan, I think from the roundtables that I spoke about, there's a very, very strong mandate for having a domestic as well as an internationally focused SNAP. But what we mean by domestic focus, we need to really unpack that in that next year. Um, so for example, we already have a national plan to address violence against women. It doesn't make sense to have a NAP to do the same thing. That is the WPS NAP to do the same thing. But we must think about how we make connections between the NAP and other existing domestic policies. Um, and maybe we can look at the sustainable development goals, which now, you know, apply to everyone. So look at 5 and 16, which are sort of gender and peace, and see whether that provides a pathway um, to looking uh, at the National Action Plan. Thank you very much. Uh, we didn't respond to our friend, neither of us, our friend's uh, argument about patriarchy continuing in Australian society. Now, I know that was a very earnestly asked question. Can I do two sex response to that? Very Just two sex. And so, of course, you're right. We're still a patriarchal society. I mean, no one imagines or pretends it isn't. And I have, uh, in my family, there are three sisters, and finally the brother was born. He had to be born. My mother had to keep having children because we were family farmers. And heavens, you know, there had to be a boy to carry on the family farm name, even though myself and my two sisters are farmers. Go figure. But... It doesn't necessarily follow that if we have women uh, receiving even higher numbers of outcomes in tertiary education, as we do in Australia now, in many faculties, if not most faculties, same in Mongolia, same in Malaysia, same in so many countries, women have now achieved more highly in access to and uh, completing tertiary education plus doesn't necessarily shake the mores in that country or the norms. It's got to happen across a whole set of cultural um, circumstances. And one of those goes right back to respect of women and men, boys and girls, and if families don't do it, we've got to do it in schools to start off with and follow up through from there. But good question. Thanks for asking. Thank you. And um, if you had a question which you didn't get to ask, my apologies, but please do come and um, see the panel members um, over the drinks. Um, so um, please join me in thanking them. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.